Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by two very special returning guests, Lynn Alden and Scott Sumner. Lynn, Scott, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Eric. So so this is the the part two. I want to get into uh, the trade deficit and how we think about uh, international trade. Maybe we could start with, Scott, inflation is, is all the rage. Percentages are high. People are getting concerned prominent people in technology and business are declaring inflation. Jack Dorsey is even warning about hyperinflation or he tweeted about it. Why are you, you not concerned or what do you think that they are misunderstanding? Well, I wouldn't say I'm not concerned at all. I think there's some risk of high inflation, excessive inflation going forward. If you look at the financial markets, they're predicting inflation is going to be elevated for a little while. It's a little unclear, a year or two of, of relatively high inflation. And then the financial markets are saying it's going to go back to about 2%. So obviously, uh, that's just the market prediction. But as you know, my philosophy is the market prediction is the least bad prediction. So um, that's kind of what I would go with. And so I do think that um, you know monetary policy currently is probably a little bit too expansionary um, because of the fact that we're probably going to overshoot the Fed's 2% uh, average inflation target. So, you know, but it's not, I don't think anything like hyperinflation or even, I don't even expect like double digit inflation over the next few years, but I I do think inflation will be a problem for some period of time before it comes down. You you mentioned you don't think it will go above 3% on average for for the decade. For the, the, I think I said that for the decade. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I would stick with that, but obviously inflation's run depending on your index, five, 6% recently. Um, so, um, and it can probably will continue to run high for a while longer. I'm not exactly sure how much longer, but uh, again, the financial markets are predicting that inflation will come down to around 2% for most of the 2020s. And, and what, what is the mechanic by which inflation would, would go down? Well, the Fed has to adjust monetary policy to slow growth in spending. And uh, you know, recently growth in spending has been very rapid. And that's what's driving the inflation, you know, combined with the supply bottlenecks. Um, so it's, I should say it's it's a little misleading to try to, to pin it down to either supply side inflation or demand side, because you know, it's really a combination of the two. So you could say truthfully that. You know, if we hadn't done all this stimulus, we wouldn't have a lot of inflation despite the supply problems. That's true. And given the amount of stimulus we did, if we didn't have the supply problems, we wouldn't have a lot of inflation because nominal GDP growth over the last two years has been quite moderate. So it's really the combination of the supply problems and the um, growth in spending and specifically um, the, the big movement from services to goods. As you probably know, the service sector is depressed and the goods sector is in a flat out boom. And it's hard for an economy to move on a dime and transition from producing one type of goods or services to another type. Yeah. And Lynn, Scott just described how you know market predictions say that we'll, we'll, we'll come back down. Why don't you take as much stock in, in, in the market predictions? Yeah. So overall, I would say I agree with a lot of what he said. You know, I, I think that 
basically what we have is a demand and supply issue currently. Uh, and the way I'd phrase it before is that if you get a rapid increase in, in money supply and other kind of stimulatory efforts, then it comes down to how constrained you are in terms of real world resources, usually uh, tied to commodities in some way, but can also be things like supply chains and things like that. So for example, if you imagine a hypothetical economy that was 100% software, if you if you dramatically increase the, the money supply, you're unlikely to get price increases, or at least you know rapid price increases, because you're not really running into a constraint. But in one that's really confined by labor or commodities or, or shipping you know, infrastructure, things like that, uh, then if you have that kind of tight, uh, uh, you know, situation, which is not, you know, it's not equally tight decade by decade, there are different commodity cycles and building cycles. Uh, and so overall, I, I view it similarly that we've essentially, in some ways, overstimulated and run into supply constraints in, in some areas. The, the part I would differ on is I think that, you know, when basically central banks are large accumulators of the sovereign debt of, of you know, multiple countries throughout Europe, Japan, the United States, uh, that that bond market ceases to be as useful as a forward indicator for what inflation levels are likely to be. Uh, because pretty much by definition, they're taking excess supply off the market, letting the market price the remaining amounts of it. So it still gives us informational value. Uh, I think in a tactical sense, so when bond yields dip and then they go up again, I think it tells us about the next couple quarters, maybe about these kind of cycles that we go through. But I don't think it's it's very informative about forward long-term inflation expectations in this environment. You know, for example, we you know a decade ago we had the European sovereign debt crisis, and essentially what backstopped that was that the ECB was willing to come in and 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 buy bonds as needed. In order to you know fix that supply demand mismatch, and now we see that they're they're the majority buyer of of you know many of their bond markets, and so overall it's not it's not like those situations got better, it's just that the market understands that there are different dynamics at play now, and so I think that you know I I'd be very cautious about forward inflation expectations. That's something I've been writing about since 2020 because we started to see that disconnect start to build. You could look at different commodity ratios and different kind of real world kind of measurements. And see, like you know, what rates probably should be in that kind of environment, and you can see that rates were not keeping up with it. When you combine it with, say, the central bank language, I mean, the Fed talks about their minutes. That one of the reasons they buy the long end of the curve is to try to suppress it, and that doesn't always work on a kind of a month by month basis, right? So it's actually kind of an ironic outcome where, you know, during rounds of QE, yields, if anything, tend to go up to some extent. Uh, so it's not like it suppresses it in the near term, but what it does is it takes excess supply off the market. Uh, and basically makes banks very reserve heavy. Scott, how, how does that re- uh, correlate with with your model of the, of the world? Well, I, I mean, I agree that the, like the tip spreads are not, you know, probably an optimal forecast, but I don't really know of a, a, a better one we have. I, I will say that uh, I believe the Fed is both buying conventional bonds and tips um, in significant quantities. So I'm not sure the spread is being distorted that much by Fed purchases. Um also, the total size of the national debt has really dramatically increased in recent years. So even though the, the Fed's holding of government bonds has increased quite sharply, both in the Great Recession and this time around, there's still a huge increase in the amount of debt not held by the Fed. So it still has to be priced you know, at a level where people are willing to hold both conventional bonds and tips. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's distortions, and there are times when I'm suspicious of tip spreads myself, especially when the market's highly illiquid in a financial crisis. But um, you know, broadly speaking, I think it's probably about the best forecast we have. And um, and you know, some of the other 
indicators, um, you know, are, I think, sort of telling us the same sort of thing. So I, I guess overall, I'm still inclined to think that interest rate, I'm sorry, inflation will come down um, after a, a period of high inflation. But again, in my mind, this all depends on what the Fed does. So, you know, the Fed is capable of reducing inflation. They're, they're committed to it. But obviously, I can't guarantee that they'll do what they say they're going to do. All I can say is it looks like, to me, the markets think that they are, in fact, committed to a 2% long-term inflation rate. And, and how much, Scott, uh, do, you, do you put little weight on whatever what, what happens with fiscal policy? If fiscal policy goes crazy in the next decade, do you think that still it wouldn't make a, a big impact on the inflation? You know, for the United States, I just don't think fiscal policy has much effect on inflation. Um, now, you know, in other countries um, where you have fiscal dominance, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, et cetera, obviously that's different. But in the United States, the, the size of the fiscal deficits is not enough to force the Fed to abandon its 2% inflation target. If it abandons that target, it would probably be for some other reason, like in the 1960s, it allowed high inflation, not because of the budget deficit, which was small at the time, rather to pursue goals like low unemployment and you know helping Nixon get reelected, et cetera. So if the Fed does abandon the 2% inflation target, I, I think it would be due to a misguided attempt to create you know, extremely high levels of employment or to do some other goal that the Fed shouldn't be trying to do. Yeah. I think what, one thing that was a, a difference between you two is I, I think Scott believes that the um, debt to GDP ratio isn't a huge thing to be worried about. You know, Lynn, you have your point that in 52 out of 53 situations where the debt to GDP ratio was as high as it is now, you know, companies in, inflated away their, their debt or, or some version of that. And I, I think I asked that to Scott and Scott said, hey, this time is different because uh, it's, it's, it's likely that real interest rates are, are lower this time. Scott, is that an accurate representation or what would you add it to that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, when you quote these kind of statistics, um, and you know, I haven't looked at this as carefully as Lynn, so I, I'm going a little bit out on a limb here. But when you look at these numbers, I think you have to recognize that there's a lot of kind of correlation between countries. So you've got this big group of developed countries that have historically behaved a certain way regarding their debt and their monetary policy, their inflation policies, and so on. And a good example is Bretton Woods, where most of them had roughly the same inflation rates. And then you've got another big group of countries in the developing world that occasionally have real fiscal problems and engage in money printing to paper over those problems. I think Argentina is a, probably a recent example. And there's a lot of countries like that. So when you look at a historical period like the 20th century, you're likely to find a correlation that largely reflects the class of countries you're talking about. Okay. Now I'm not saying that's entirely the case that there's probably some developed countries, you know, that had very high inflation as well. But I do think that, you know, when you get into the the 21st century and you have permanently lower real interest rates uh, seemingly and politicians seem to care more about the interest burden on the debt than the size of the debt itself, that's pushing a lot of countries to, you know, increase the debt to GDP ratio. And so we're having sort of an experiment on a grand scale all across the developed world. And I don't think we know yet whether that's going to force them to become like Argentina and eventually, you know, monetize this debt by printing a lot of money. Uh, time will tell. But I, I, I think that when you look at these numbers, 
you have to remember to some extent you're looking at classes of countries that are very correlated with what they do. So I, I would just say to be careful. I'm not I'm not saying Lynn's wrong about that. It's certainly, you know, I think we're actually on the same side politically. I, I oppose the large budget deficits right now. I'd like to see them smaller. I'm opposed to the current fiscal stimulus that's working through Congress, but I'm probably a little bit less concerned about the inflation consequences. How, how would you respond to all that, Lynn? I think a couple points. One is, so I, I so I do view fiscal policy as, as being an important factor for inflation. Uh, that's kind of that was a probably the central point of why I expected the the inflation we got here in 2021. And the reason essentially has to do with you know the way I would describe it is that the Fed, you know, central banks in general are useful at suppressing inflation, but they their tools are limited for increasing inflation if it's running under their target. Uh, because they they have limited abilities to say you know direct money to people right they can they can manage interest rates and they can buy assets uh, but they don't really have a, a mechanism to to spend uh, and so I would say a large part of this supply demand mismatch that we're having as well as the increase in the broad money supply over the past couple of years is that you run large fiscal deficits and you get that money out into people's hands. Uh, that they can then spend and pay down debt and things like that. And these are these are generally these more inflationary policies. And the Fed's role essentially is to take excess, you know, treasury supply off the market and kind of facilitate that, ensure smooth functioning liquidity of the sovereign bond market to the extent that they can. And so they're they're kind of just not putting the brakes on at that point. And so, you know, I, I would kind of separate those two to some extent in that regard. As for, you know, high debt levels generally being inflationary. The way I would describe it essentially is that both developed markets and emerging markets, they generally go through it in different ways. So that study showed that when debt to GDP gets that high, that debt is not paid back one way or another. And if you look at the emerging markets, they're more likely to do things like outright default or experience hyperinflation, things like that, uh, generally the more extreme sides of the spectrum. Developed markets are generally more likely to do something in the middle, which is essentially financial repression, which is that you get a period of higher inflation and lower rates. So you get uh, a, kind of a structural period of negative real rates. Uh, and, and that basically makes it so that those bonds, you know, and a large part of it does not get paid back in terms of purchasing power, but you have less extreme outcomes generally than, than what you find in emerging markets. Uh, and that's because, you know, unless they lost a war or other so, sort of massively disruptive thing to their base, they didn't have a huge downturn in productivity uh, or, or kind of, you know, that, that lost kind of foundation. Uh, and because also their liabilities are denominated in their own currency, uh, and so they're you know they're kind of able to manage that in a somewhat smoother way. Uh, and so overall, I would describe that you know in this era of a very high debt to GDP. Uh, so I do think that the interest expense is a key thing to watch, and that's why I view essentially that bond yields are likely not going to represent, say, year-over-year CPI you know, for much of the 2020s that you're going to have this ongoing disconnect. Like right now, it's pretty extreme where you have 6% CPI increases and and zero rates. Um, you know, I don't know if that size gap, I think that gap, you could have periods where that gap gets bigger. You could have periods where that gap gets smaller. But I think when you look back at this decade from, say, 2030, I think you're going to see that, that bond yields were persistently below the prevailing inflation rate. And actually, if you look back over the past decade, that already happened to a mild extent with T-bills. So T-bills spent the majority of the 2010s decade uh, yielding below the inflation rate, uh, whereas long bonds 
fared somewhat better. And I think the 2020s, you're going to see that across a, a bigger portion of the duration spectrum, possibly all of it, uh, like we're seeing now, uh, and that the magnitude will probably be larger because of the, you know, the, the more fiscal heavy environment and the fact that, you know, the 2010s were kind of characterized by commodity abundance uh, and, and also, you know, basically, uh, you know, China had a very different role in that decade. Uh, whereas I think going forward, we have this kind of not deglobalization, but but maybe less ongoing globalization, kind of a pause in globalization, uh, mixed with the fact that commodity cycles are generally a little more scarce now. So when you combine fiscal policy with the real world constraints, and then the high debt levels that kind of necessitate low interest rates, uh, I think that's where you get that kind of currency devaluation mix. Uh, whereas I, I don't, I don't use phrase. I don't really, I don't describe things as hyperinflationary things like that. Scott, how would you react to that? Well, I think that. My problem here is that although the current inflation burst we're seeing now is consistent with the notion that um, interest rates are being artificially held too low, if you take a, a longer view of, say, the last 40 years where we've had steadily lower interest rates, I mean, there's kind of two theories of what that's all about. One theory is that the equilibrium or natural rate of interest has been falling for 40 years. That's my view. Another is that this long downward trend has been artificially created by central bank policies. And, um, and you know, some people may hold some mixture of those two views as well. But um, so until this recent burst in inflation, I just think there was a lot of evidence that we're on a long-term downward trend in equilibrium interest rates that isn't really being produced by easy money policies. It reflects long-run structural changes in the economy, savings, investment, et cetera, demographics. And for that reason, I'm not as concerned about inflation coming out of this low interest rate period. Like if, if a central bank actually held interest rates well below their equilibrium value for any sustained period of time, you should get very, very high inflation. And you know, one of the reasons the Fed abandoned interest rate targeting in 1951 is that uh, it seemed to be pushing inflation much, much higher. So uh, you know, we'll have to see. Obviously, um, we're in a period of higher inflation. And, and there's two views as to whether it's transitory or permanent. And I think how that plays out will influence people's judgments as to whether interest rates are being held way too low or not. But I, I, I'm still of the, the view that these low interest rates reflect structural forces in the economy, that they're not artificially created by central banks, and um, they're not going away. In other words, I, I think the 21st century is probably going to be a low interest rate century, or at least many decades of the century. So, um, you know, I, I guess there's a little bit of a difference there in nuance, at least. And, and Lynn, why, why don't you believe it's, uh, it, it's, it's naturally or free-falling free as, as, as Scott's proposed? Um, or, or what would you need to see in order to change your view? Well, I think, I mean, if you look at that whole 40-year period, I think you, you, you've reached a, a point of unusually high interest rates. So, and that, you know, that was, you know, there, you had the issues with the 70s. You changed the way the monetary system was, was structured. You ran into a major structural trains in oil. So, for example, United States oil production peaked in 1970 and then went on a multi-decade downtrend until the shale, uh, shale revolution, right? So you had, you had real-world resource constraints combined with, you know, going off the gold standard, uh, rapid increases in broad money supply. And so we entered, you know, around 1980, we entered that totally different regime. And so we entered, you know, I would say that a large part of that declining interest rate 
over those over those decades was natural. I mean that that those those levels were not sustainable at those super high rates. And part of that comes down to demographics and things like that. So you, you stabilize the the financial system, uh, and you had the developed world have much slower demographics. And then in the 90s and uh, the 2000s, you had uh, an uptick in globalization. So with you know with the internet and with other technologies. Uh, you could do labor arbitrage uh, and basically disconnect, say, worker productivity from worker wages at, at, a, at a bigger rate than than was historically before then. And so you had you had a tr- you had a combination of technology deflation and demographics defl- deflation that I do think uh, a lot of that was naturally interest rates going down. Where I would draw the line is after the global financial crisis and the uptick in quantitative easing. Uh, I think that's where we entered a different era where interest rates are, are going to be less reflective of inflation levels uh, going forward uh, with, with basically central banks willing to take excess supply off the market uh, and basically do, you know, in Europe, you might call it spread control, say, between Italian bonds and German bonds. Uh, and, you know, you have, in some cases, you had formal yield curve control like Australia uh, over the past uh, couple of years. Uh, and then also you just have essentially just buying large amounts of the market, taking it off. You also had a change in regulation. So for example, you have money market accounts or holding more treasuries than they used to. There's different regulations to kind of, you know, keep treasury bills kind of at the at the heart of the system to make sure that they're always uh, kind of, there's a, a big demand for them for collateral. And so I, I view it as a combination rather than one or the other. Uh, so I think that, you know, overall, I think I, so I agree that this will be probably a low interest rate uh, few decades uh, I just don't necessarily think that inflation is also going to be low. I, I think you can get a period in the 2020s where inflation is 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 pretty elevated, and I don't think it'll be a straight line. I think if you look at the 40s and the 70s, uh, those are both very inflationary decades, for example. And it wasn't just like you had a straight line up of inflation the whole time. They they went through waves, so they had higher inflation than they had lower inflation. Some of that was from wage and price controls, but other other things were because you had shifting real world constraints. You had you had you know, central bank attempts to 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 pause that. You had sovereign government attempts to pause that. You had you had different kind of mechanisms going on. And so, I, you know, I think that there will be periods, maybe late 22, 2023, where you have a cooling off of inflation, for example. But that doesn't mean you can't get another round of it deeper into the decade. I would expect waves as a base case. If you had to, uh, if, if Scott proposed three percent or not exceeding three percent as a guess um, for the decade, do you have a guess or prediction for what the decade averages might be? So the I guess the conservative measure that I've been I've been saying is that I expect the 2020s to be higher average inflation than the 2010s, which is a pretty low bar. So three percent would already meet that criteria. Uh, my base case would probably be somewhat above three percent, but coming to an exact number is challenging because I so I, I would agree with Scott that that that's that's where it depends on what they do, right? So it partially depends on you know not just Fed policy in my view, but also fiscal policy, right? So uh, you know how elections turn out, whether there's fiscal gridlock, uh, you know whether the Fed, you know, kind of gets more aggressive or less aggressive. Uh, it also, I think, depends on what country you're looking at. Um, so I, I probably would take the over on that. But anything, you know, over my base case, is essentially higher than the than the 2010s decade, and and potentially by a significant amount. But we'll see. You you both overlap on lots of things. One thing you differ is, I guess, uh, you're more, um, you Lynn are more. Uh, trusting or, or or believe stronger that fiscal policy can, uh, you know ha- has effects here. What do you see differently about the world that leads you to that prediction? Where, where that and, and versus what's led Scott to his belief there? 
Well, that's hard to answer because I don't. I I haven't researched exactly how he got to his view, but I would say for me, what showed that view was going through historical data, and and seeing the important role that fiscal policies played, um, and and how that is has been a large component of say broad money supply growth, and then correlating that with those periods of supply constraints. Uh, and so you see, generally, if you if you map out broad money supply and CPI. Uh, you know, going back 150 years or so across, you know, multiple developed countries, you'll see a pretty strong correlation, but it's not a perfect correlation. I would describe essentially that rapid broad money supply growth is is a necessary but not sufficient uh, variable for high CPI. Uh, and so you generally don't see high price increases. You know, it's hard to get a broad increase in prices without a broad increase in the money supply, but you can have the opposite. You can have periods where money supply goes up quite a bit and due to due to technology deflation or other variables, uh, you don't have that that supply constraint. And therefore, you don't have high prices going up. And there's really two ways to get broad money supply growth. One is that banks can lend, uh, which, for example, was fueling the 1970s uh, uh, inflation. And, and part of it was then you had fiscal deficits towards the end of that as well. But a lot of that was bank lend driven, uh, and, and it ties into demographics and things like that. Whereas if you look at the 40s, that inflation was not bank lending driven. That was almost entirely fiscal driven. Uh, you basically, the, the government would run very large deficits, uh, and then the banking system and the central bank would 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 you know essentially monetize that as needed. Uh, and so I, I view that fiscal policy is one of the two levers that they have, uh, aside from just commercial bank driven, which is not really a lever that they can pull for increasing the broad money supply. So I track that, and then I track just commodities and other kind of measures of real world constraints. Scott, how do you interpret that that data differently? So I, I guess I differ a little bit on the, the the periods when you don't have the expected rise in prices associated with monetary stimulus or fiscal stimulus. Um, I think Lynn mentioned things like technological progress and so on. Uh, the thing I focus on is the demand for money. So there's a, there's certain periods where these are sometimes called like the liquidity trap periods, uh, very low interest rates. People are wanting to hold a lot of liquidity, the 1930s, the Great Recession, and so on. And as a result, you can inject money in the economy without getting a lot of inflation. It's hoarded by the public or by banks. And then you go into a period where things are more bullish, the economy is booming, say World War II or other periods, where that same amount of money that's been in the economy for a while but hasn't been creating inflation does begin creating inflation because velocity of circulation goes up, which is the flip side of demand for money. So it means lower demand for money, higher velocity. So I see what, what's happened is that sometimes like the 40s is a delayed reaction to money that was already injected in the economy during the Great Recession, but wasn't circulating with a high level of velocity. And um, you know that I think that occurs throughout history in, in some of these cycles. Um, but I want to make one other point, circling back to the interest rates, a useful way of thinking about my approach is that sort of a first pass is that nominal interest rates are related to nominal GDP growth and nominal GDP growth is determined by monetary policy, okay? So for instance, during the 1970s, nominal GDP growth was really high, close to 11% a year. So you don't have to go to like an oil shock to explain why we had a lot of inflation and high interest rates and so on. That kind of nominal GDP growth coming from monetary policy would create the same thing regardless of what happened to oil prices. Conversely, nominal GDP growth slowed to about 4% in the recovery from the Great Recession. 
So that's a slowdown of about seven percentage points. But the surprising thing to me, and the thing I didn't expect, is that nominal interest rates have fallen even by more than nominal GDP growth has fallen. So even though we've gotten back to like a 1950s inflation environment, our interest rates are even lower than then, right? So that that's the part that's kind of surprising to me. And what that means is there's some forces that are pushing interest rates to an unusually low level, even given the nominal GDP growth rate slowing quite a bit. And, you know, I think Lynn and some others might say, well, that's a repression, the, the government or the Fed artificially holding rates even lower than would be justified by that slowdown in nominal GDP growth. In my view, it might be due to demographics, savings, investment shifts in the global economy that are hard to understand, but are pushing rates lower globally. But I still think that's kind of a poorly understood phenomenon. But I, So in other words, there's two parts to this long-term downward trend in interest rates. An easy part to explain, slower nominal GDP growth produced by changes in government policies, fiscal and monetary, and even lower interest rates than would be expected given that slowdown in nominal GDP growth. So dividing the problem up into those two pieces, I think sometimes makes it easier to kind of understand where the differences come in. And is there anything you'd add to that or did Scott summarize the difference as well? I think he described it well. I think, you know, basically the, the only thing I would kind of differ on is that I think the importance of, of real world constraints are pretty critical uh, and that, that, there is a big difference when you have a period of essentially commodity oversupply, right? So, so commodities tend to go in these really big, say, 10, 15 year cycles, where because you know co- companies don't even control the price of their own product in that industry, right? Un- unlike most other industries, th- there's no differentiation. And so you have this period where, say, commodity prices are high, there's not enough, uh, there's, there's you know, either too much demand or not enough supply. So Producers come in, they make more, they, they find more, they put money into the ground, they, they they eventually find more. And then either you get a slowdown in, in demand, or you just brought so much excess supply to the market that you've essentially flooded the market, uh, and you've created a structural period of oversupply. And because you have big mines or, or big oil fields, things like that, that oversupply can last for many, many years. Same thing with periods of, of, over, of undersupply, because it can sometimes take years to bring on these new giant resources. And so you tend to go through these big cycles. And so you generally see a bigger disconnect between money supply and inflation during periods where, where those commodity cycles are, are pretty abundant, when there's really there's there's less constraint about the, the commodities. So generally, the, these these periods of of kind of bigger disconnect, it's more able to happen in that type of environment. That that's that's one thing I would I would kind of use different. Yeah, I want to segue over to globalization, but Scott, is there? Is, do you want to have a last comment on that or? Well, yeah, I think commodities are important, but more for the shorter term cycles. So I think Lynn mentioned that in the 70s, inflation wasn't constant. You know, there are big spikes in 74, 1980, and so on. So I see the commodity cycles as explaining why there's this big year-to-year variation. But I think nominal GDP growth does explain the longer term inflation, because even in the 70s, real GDP grew over 3% a year. So that's, that's a solid performance. So you can't say overall that the 70s inflation was a supply problem necessarily, but definitely the peaks of inflation in the 74 and at the end of the decade, those were uh, commodity supply uh, problems and you know very high commodity prices. So um, I think it's the difference between long-term inflation trends and cyclical trends in inflation. So, so I want to segue into uh, into a topic you, you write quite about, Lynn, which is sort of the the Triffin dilemma as it relates to 
being the global reserve currency. So, so you talk about the the pros that comes with being the the, the benefits, i.e., the uh, higher standard of living, advantage in in militarily because you can print your own currency to buy commodities and uh, and yeah, and other imports while other countries can't. But you also talk about the uh, the real downsides that maybe we uh, you know it aren't quite widely known. You, you talk about it being uh, you know the Triffin dilemma, uh, which means that the uh, the what results from the global reserve currency is a persistent demand for dollars, which means there are perpetual trade deficits to server the, uh, service the dollar supply. And trade deficits can't last forever. And so debt builds up until it becomes unmanageable. And that this is inherent in being the the, the global reserve currency and has had side effects like shifting our supply chains o- overseas. You know, Manufacturing in the 70s used to be 30% of US GDP. Now it's 11%. Uh, industrial at large is 19% of US GDP, while world average is, is 30%. What would you uh, add or edit to, 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 to my description? I, I think I would characterize it as every time we kind of order how the global monetary system works, there's usually one or more unsustainable aspects of that, basically a resource that we start drawing down from in order to maintain that, that system. And if you look back at the Bretton Woods, uh, you had the original Triffin dilemma, which is about the capital account. Uh, and you know, if you look at, at how that system functioned, one of the, the, the imbalances in that system was that U.S. gold reserves kept declining, uh, while the amount of dollars outstanding outside of the country kept increasing. So you know, essentially, you know, Americans could no longer redeem dollars for gold, but the, the foreign sector could, the foreign official sector. Uh, and that's what, that's what still maintained that peg to some extent. But because of the combination of the the euro dollar market and just you know running deficits and 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 money supply growth and all sorts of factors, the number of dollars outside of the country kept increasing and and treasuries as well kept increasing uh, compared to the amount of gold that the United States had. And so eventually you had this this constant decrease in the gold supply until they had to say, look, this is not working anymore. We we can't really maintain this backing, and so you know we're we're closing the gold window. And the way I would describe the, the system that came after that from the 1970s and onward is so we replaced essentially gold with treasuries at the center of the system. Uh, and so treasuries became like, you know, increasingly the, the asset that that uh, is, is held on central bank balance sheets. And the challenge there is so the United States made a deal with Saudi Arabia and other other countries to only price their oil in dollars. Uh, and that means basically any country in the world that needs to import oil needs dollars. So they either, and they can get it in multiple ways, they can exchange their currency for dollars, or they can start pricing their own exports in dollars to get dollars. So there's multiple ways to do it, but essentially they need to accumulate dollars in order to be able to import oil from those those countries. And the challenge there is that that gives, you know, well, it gives the United States multiple advantages. We can sanction countries, we can essentially cut them off from the lifeblood of the system. Uh, it gives us more global reach. Uh, things like that. One of the downsides, if you look at, okay, what's the imbalance in this system? What is what is the resources being drawn down? And essentially, it's that you know, with all that global demand for dollars, that you know, essentially gives us a version of Dutch disease. Whereas basically, you describe it as instead of finding a big commodity area, the commodities that we found are treasuries and dollars that the world needs now. Uh, that we've we've kind of engineered there that they need it, and so now they 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 have to get it from us, which sounds good. But essentially what happens is so the United States has been running these structural trade deficits now for, for, for decades under this, this this system. And those dollars essentially find their way back into either – they used to go back in the treasury market. So, so we you know foreigners would then take those dollars that they – their trade surpluses, and then they would buy treasuries and, and use them as their foreign exchange reserves. 
but as we've entered, especially over the past decade, as we've entered this period of kind of, you know, rates being below the inflation rate and treasuries no longer being particularly attractive assets, uh, you know, some countries have kind of stopped doing that. Instead, they, you know, China would say, take their dollar surpluses and go out and make loans to different countries around the world and use their use their dollar assets in that way. Or you have uh, other countries like Switzerland taking their current account surpluses and putting them into U.S. equities um, as a way, you know, at least part of it to, to you know, get that different kind of, of exposure. And so essentially, I would say that part of one of the downsides of the system is that it fuels some of the wealth concentration in the United States that we see. So if you look at, say, Credit Suisse data on median versus mean wealth in, in different developed countries around the world, the United States is one of the highest differentiators between the mean and the median. Uh, you could also just measure by the, the, the Gini coefficient, different ways to measure wealth concentration. And I would argue that's in part because we've drawn down our ma manufacturing base at a faster rate. We, we our, our industrial sectors become a smaller percentage of our total GDP than those. And that we've also simultaneously propped up our asset prices to a bigger degree because we keep cycling our trade deficits back into uh, financial assets. So there's a lot of moving parts there, obviously, but it's a, it's a topic that I, I kind of like to focus on because every system that has benefits usually has some sort of drawbacks. And it's important, I think, to identify where those are. And, and you mentioned earlier, you mentioned sort of the prediction of, uh, you know, upcoming or forthcoming, uh, not exactly de-globalization, but, but some version of that. Can you talk about your prediction out in terms of what you think the next system might look or lack of system might look like? How do you think it's going to play out? So two two parts there. One is globalization. If you measure it, if you measure it in one variable, I would describe it as global trade as a percentage of global GDP. And there, you know, there's research on that going back to the 1800s. And there's a general structural trend towards higher globalization uh, until, of course, around World War One. Uh, then you enter this multi-decade period of deglobalization, where you had two world wars, and you also had tariff wars in between. Uh, and then after World War II, uh, you know, with the with the reformation of of you know the kind of global order, you had another multi-decade trend of globalization. So more and more trade as a percentage of global GDP. You know, it kind of paused in the in the 1980s, but then when you had you know the end of the Soviet Union and the opening of China, uh, you know, throughout the 90s, you had another big leg up in globalization. Uh, and that kind of peaked around global financial crisis. Uh, so since around 2008, global trade as a percentage of global GDP has kind of been like flat, flat to even mildly down. So we haven't like rapidly deglobalized or anything like that. That's a very long structural trend that doesn't just reverse on a dime, but we've we've kind of ceased further globalization uh, based on that particular measurement. And I think as you, you know, in recent years, as you've seen more tensions between say the United States and China, uh, and now, now that we're seeing kind of the, some of the consequences of having such a globally efficient kind of, you know, last minute supply chain, uh, I, I think in some ways it's arguable that we've kind of reached peak globalization, at least for the next few decades, uh, that we could enter another period of, of either contraction in globalization or at least just a leveling out for, for a period of time. And that all else being equal is an inflationary force because, you know, I think part of what made the natural interest rate go down and natural inflation rate go down the past couple of decades was this global arbitrage, basically finding cheap markets around the world, cheap labor, uh, cheap manufacturing capabilities, uh, and the technology that allowed that to be efficient. Uh, the, the other part of the equation is if, if that starts to happen, around the margins, we're seeing kind of, you know, a, a somewhat of a shift in the way that the system's structured. So we're starting to see that, that Russia is willing to price oil outside of the dollar-based system. 
they've they they've essentially de-dollarized, so that you know they hold most of their reserves now in in either euro assets or twenty percent in gold uh, and a little bit in, in say Chinese currency. They they've kind of de-dollarized, uh, and then you have other countries that are less extreme in that regard. Uh, but I, I do think essentially we're, we're shifting towards a little bit more decentralized global reserve basket, where instead of one world reserve currency, you have a handful of regional reserve currencies and a handful of currencies that can be used to buy oil. So I think that's it's kind of shifting out globally to some extent. Uh, thank you, Lynn. That's great. So Scott, Lynn just gave sort of a, a reading of history, an analysis of the state of play today, and then you know some uh, some implicit or explicit predictions. Um, in terms of where, where might things might go with that that last point, how, how do those uh, those f- uh, differ from 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 how you see the history, uh, the present, and the future? Well, uh, I'm not sure the um, the advantages the U.S. has from the international use of the dollar are as large as she thinks, uh, as Lynn thinks. Um, you know, it's hard to know for sure. But one thing I would point to is that the patterns that you're seeing in international uh, trade, investment, and so on with the U.S are not that different from some of the other English-speaking countries. So the English-speaking countries tend to run trade deficits. They tend to see a declining share of GDP and manufacturing and so on. And one one common thread here is that um, you're getting that financed in some other way. For the United States, for instance, we can think of the U.S. as borrowing money very cheaply by selling treasury bonds to foreigners at 1% or 2% interest rate and then when we invest overseas, we're earning much higher rates of return on our multinational corporations that invest around the world. Because of the difference in rate of return from what we earn on foreign investments versus what foreigners are earning on treasury bonds, we're able to run budget deficits year after, I'm sorry, trade deficits year after year without any sort of day of reckoning. Now, there may be a day of reckoning in the future if, if that process doesn't continue to play out that way. And I think this is also true to some extent in Canada, Britain, Australia, and so on, but maybe for different reasons. Like in Australia, it might be, um, you know, imports of goods are offset by sales of assets or whatever in Australia. But for whatever reason, the English-speaking countries show this pattern. And then in Northern Europe, you see a completely different pattern where most of the countries have large trade surpluses and current account surpluses. But how much of that is driven by the fact that the dollar is special? Well, yes, we do borrow at low interest rates because treasury bonds are very popular right now. But other countries, other developed countries are also borrowing at very low interest rates, uh, except a few cases maybe where there's default risk like Greece. But generally speaking, the interest rates are low throughout the developed world. So I don't deny that the dollar has some advantages, both the dollar itself and dollar-denominated debt like treasury bonds. And we have a benefit to the United States from that fact, and that does have some impact on the size of our trade deficit. But I'm just not sure that it's it's that big an effect. Um, I, I think that if you look at, again, the other English-speaking countries, you're seeing some of these same trends. So I tend to think that there are other structural issues going on that um, also explain a big part of this process. And in terms of the decline in manufacturing, uh, a lot of this is, I think, also due to tech. So when I talked about the large profits being earned by U.S. companies around the world, I think a a good part of that is probably the tech sector. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately for people in manufacturing, that's that means their comparative advantage to the United States is no longer labor-intensive manufacturing, it's tech. 
So we're seeing a shift of our economy in that direction. And countries where the tech sector is a little bit less dynamic, like Germany and Japan, have held up somewhat better in manufacturing, although manufacturing is actually declining everywhere as a, as a percentage of the workforce, but it's declining more rapidly in the United States. So I think there's a number of factors going on here. Um, and uh, you know, I think certainly what Lynn said is a lot of the points are correct, but I don't think it's maybe the dominant factor. I, I, I tend to think of this in terms of the English speaking countries as a group. What's really driving the persistent current account deficits you're getting in that group of countries? And it, it, it's obviously not the US dollar for all the others. So there, I think there's some other factors as well. How would you react to that, Lynn? So I would break in into two different eras. Uh, you know, so uh, so I would agree that that the that basically that the that the dollar's current system is not benefiting the United States as much as many people think. But I would break that into two different parts. So I would say, you know, from in the '70s uh, and '80s, uh, I think that that was uh, a pretty important resource when you're kind of looking in the context of the Cold War, uh, basically ensuring uh, global demand for your your debt, your currency, uh, and, and was a really big key part. It also, you know, gave you geopolitical reach uh, in that important time. I would say that, you know, essentially since the end of the of the Cold War, so so the '90s and onwards, um, that basically it's it's not been the advantage that it has been before. And this is a point that other analysts like Luke Groman have made. Uh, I think he's been very spot on on this observation. Uh, and so overall, I would describe it as essentially since the '90s, the drawbacks of, of having the system have, have been somewhat larger than some of the benefits. And it's not so much that the United States is able to borrow at lower interest rates. We actually have some of the higher interest rates among developed countries. So if you look at, at much of Europe and, and Japan uh, and many other and many other developed countries, the United States is on the on the top half or the top third of that spectrum generally. Uh, it, it's partially that we're able to borrow at lower uh, real interest rates. So it include basically how you know we, we tend to grow our money supply faster. We tend to have higher average inflation. Uh, so we generally have a pretty attractive uh, borrowing rates in real terms. That's one variable. Uh, and then two, you know, if we talk about the reckoning, right? So, so how how long can you sustain this without a reckoning? You know, the the thing I would point to is the net international investment position. So, so essentially, when you run persistent trade deficits or, or more specifically current account uh, uh, deficits for a long period of time, what ends up happening is that the foreign sector owns more and more of your productive assets, your financial assets. Uh, and so if you, look at, if you look at Japan and Germany, for example, they're, they're the ones running these you know, current account surpluses structurally. Uh, and so they build up very large net international investment position, positions, which means that they own more foreign assets than foreigners own of their assets. So they own stocks and companies and bonds and land from around the world um, and, and basically have this stream then of, of interest and dividends and capital appreciation from those investments. Of course, it does depend on what they invest in. If they if they entirely invest in foreign bonds, then they're going to get a low rate of return. Whereas if they invest increasingly in real estate and stocks in other countries, uh, they get you know, basically they're buying real assets. They're getting higher returns on average. And so a general trend that we've seen over the past, especially the past 25 years, is that foreigners are increasingly taking their surpluses and then they're buying U.S. assets rather than just treasury bonds. So they're buying U.S. stocks, they're buying U.S. real estate, they're they're buying wholly owned subsidiaries of, of companies, they're buying U.S. land. And so what the United States has had is essentially a rapidly declining net international investment position. We've gone from, say, the, the being the world's biggest creditor nation, so having the highest absolute net international investment position to being by far the, the most negative absolute net international investment position. But then even when you 
uh, 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 divided by GDP. So you look at countries' NIPs divided by their GDP. The United States is one of the lowest in the world now uh, among developed countries. Where you know, kind of Spain would also be pretty low, but generally the United States is one of the lowest in the world because essentially the foreign sector owns increasing percentages of U.S. assets. And it's hard to say how long that can go on for. I mean, it, you know, right now it's maybe negative 70% of GDP. Could it reach negative 100% of GDP? That's certainly possible. But essentially that, that that's not an infinite loop that, that can go on forever. Eventually that, I think, normalizes and, and kind of reaches politically untenable levels. Scott, how, how would you react to that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to predict how that's going to play out. I will say this, though. Um, I've been following this issue for like decades now. I'm, I'm pretty old. I'm 66 years old. And I can remember quite a long time ago, experts saying, uh, yes, the U.S. still has a net positive flow of you know, investment income. So it's still a net flow of investment income to the U.S., even though we're becoming a net debtor nation. But that's given current trends, this will turn around soon. This can't go on much longer. This was decades ago. And uh, I'm not saying it can go on forever, but we've continued to run larger and larger debts, um, you know, export more and more treasury bonds and other financial assets. And Lynn's right, you know, probably increasingly we're exporting more high yield assets as well. Um, you know, the Norwegian Sovereign Fund, I think, buys a lot of U.S. stocks, for instance. But when you net it all out, I, I believe the f- flow of investment income is still positive for the United States. And um, so I'm very leery of predicting uh, anything about a day of reckoning. I mean, obviously, if you go far enough out in the future, these trends will change in one direction or another. But I just don't think we know how long this can go on. And uh, my best forecast would be we're in for a considerably longer period of continued deficits, but probably not a big problem in terms of net flow and investment income. Uh, If it does, turn around, it'll force the US into more austerity. But of course, <clears throat> you know, this sounds very bad, but from a lot of people's perspective, it might be a good thing because that would force the US to re- start running trade surpluses. Um, now, I don't think trade surpluses are necessarily something that should be a policy goal, but many people do believe that. So it's important to recognize that the term day of reckoning sounds painful. And in one respect, it is kind of painful because it would probably uh, force at least a slight cut in consumption or lifestyle of Americans. But that day of reckoning would also involve trade surpluses and probably growth in the U.S. manufacturing sector. So that's an important thing to keep in mind when you hear the term day of reckoning. Um, now, whether that adjustment occurs smoothly, that's that's a whole other issue as well. But um, you know, I've heard the, the predictions that this can't go on much longer for so long. Um, and I'm not seeing the intermediate steps that you would expect before it had to end. By intermediate steps, I mean the flow of investment income reversing to a net negative for the United States. So as far as I can see, we're still quite a ways away from the day of reckoning. Lynn, f- feel free to respond to that if you have a reaction. I also want to segue into my, my last question of the show, which is, um, and it's kind of a big question, but in Luke Roman has talked about a, bit, a bunch about the US-China uh, you know, dynamic. And I'm curious, um, who, who, who do you think basically has, has more leverage in, 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 in the dynamic and how, how should we think about, um, you know, the, the, that sort of, uh, financial dynamic? Yeah. So just going back to tie up the last point, I would say there's a, a part that I very much agree with and a, and a part that I see differently. So the part I agree with absolutely is that a day of reckoning does not have to be a bad thing in, in whole. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a big shift 
Uh, and so that's actually one of the things I've been highlighting in my research as well, uh, that, you know, let's say you had that, those shift in fund flows going out, you'd probably get a weaker dollar. And generally you see countries that handle that transition well, you know, they might get a, say a weaker currency for a period of time, but that makes their, you know, gives them some degree of austerity so that their, their input, input power is weaker, their exports are more competitive. And that, you know, if, as long as they don't kind of spiral into some sort of deeper problem, that becomes a self-correcting state of affairs. Uh, and so I, I, I do agree with that part. The part that I would draw attention to is that if you look at the net international invest position of the United States, uh, it's essentially gone exponential in, in the sense that it's very recently, uh, you know, the past 10, 15 years, kind of started accelerating to the downside at a very rapid pace. So you had kind of multiple decades of this slow grind where you went from a very uh, a surplus position uh, to a, a gradually towards a, a deficit position. Uh, and then really uh, in the past, say, call it call it decade, uh, you've really kind of rapidly dug down uh, as you've had this kind of acceleration uh, in trade deficits and kind of a, a, a disproportionate increase in U.S. asset valuations compared to foreign asset valuations, especially in the in the stock sector, less so in in real estate. If anything, f- you know, some foreign markets have higher uh, real estate valuations, but really in the capital markets and in, in the stock markets, especially, uh, you've seen that really big disconnect. And so I would say that's the part that I think is becoming more rapidly unsustainable. Uh, is that that huge rate of of deepening net international investment position at at this pace? Going to the China and U.S. Uh, comparison, I think there's different areas where the countries have very different uh, amounts of leverage. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of geography, uh, United States has arguably the best geography in the world in the sense that you have the, the you know connection to two oceans, deep water ports, uh, the best uh, agricultural system. When you look at the rivers and things like that, you have a uh, high amount of natural resources. The big challenge that China faces is a couple. One is they're more closed off in terms of geography, right? So in terms of their water borders and number of land borders that they have to manage. Uh, and then two, they have various commodity constraints. So they're more likely to want, run into water issues, uh, energy issues, um, and, 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 and food issues, right? So they're more reliant on importing the commodities that they need. Uh, so that's where the U.S. has a really big advantage. Uh, you know, the disadvantage is that, you know, China now is as a, a very large infrastructure for manufacturing. So even if we wanted to bring back manufacturing, for example, or become more self-sufficient in the global sense, you know, those massive ports don't just build themselves overnight. I mean, those are, those are you know, multi-year, even multi-decade investments that, that build up over time. So they have a lot of build-up infrastructure that it places them kind of at the center of the global manufacturing hub. Uh, and then when you combine that with their Belt, belt and Road Initiative. So, you know, their 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 commodity agreements, you know, with multiple different countries, their infrastructure now that goes throughout the rest of Asia, for example, uh, they're very well positioned in terms of that type of infrastructure. You know, in addition, uh, you know, they're very strong in terms of having supply of key metals for electrification of the world. So cobalt, uh, nickel, both in terms of agreements that they've had in order to buy them, but also in terms of the refining capacity. So it's another area where they've invested heavily that the U.S. has maybe not done so very much. Uh, and then, of course, the United, uh, United States has that deeply negative net international investment position. China has that positive one. And so kind of the status quo in some ways favors China in the sense that they can keep buying up dollar-denominated assets around the world by running those, those structural uh, surpluses. They also face, however, weaker demographics going forward than the United States. Um, and so I, I think it's one of those things where it's it's like tit for tat. You have this really the, these two really large powers. 
And both of them have almost like insurmountable advantages over the other one. And that's why they're so intertwined and, and, and so kind of connected at the hip. Scott, how, how would you react to that? Well, a couple points. Um, one thing China has to think about or worry about a little is that they might work very hard and getting rich by working hard and saving a lot of money and then end up not getting very rich. And the country I think of here is, is Germany, which, you know, you, you would think Germany would be a lot richer than the United States, right? But my understanding is a lot of Germans just invest in bank accounts, not in like Amazon stock or Apple stock, things like that. So somehow the United States has ended up with a lot more wealth in the stock market and so on than a country like Germany. And so for me, I mean, certainly Lynn's right. We have a lot of natural resource advantages in the United States and so on. But I would point to the talent combined with the economic system here as being a big advantage, right? So Silicon Valley could have been anywhere in the world, but it was in the United States. Hollywood could have been anywhere, but it was the United States. Even something like fracking. I mean, think about the fracking industry. It's not here because the U.S. is the only country with oil. We, we have a small percentage of the world's oil, but we have most of the world's fracking because we're good at doing fracking. And I think that a lot of the, the anomalous trends we're seeing recently having to do with wealth and financial flows and so on reflect the fact that the U.S. has made enormous uh, gains in industries like high tech. And the country really dominates the, the entire world in, in, in many of these industries. And, and it's, it's the huge amount of wealth created here has been one of the factors fueling, for instance, our trade deficits and so on. You know, so for a country like China, it can go in different ways. It can kind of become like the United States and develop its own Apple and Google and Facebook and all that. Or it can become kind of like Germany or Japan, like very good at manufacturing, but not really making a big impact in cutting edge industries and therefore not doing as well in wealth as you'd expect based on the productivity of their workers. I don't know if that, that makes sense, but so that's kind of the model I'm thinking in terms of more and more is, is the way that the U.S. really stands out, not so much in worker productivity, but in having a lot of talented people that are producing these world-class companies and not just in tech, but even in areas like fracking, where there's, there's just for some reason the U.S. is good at doing things that other countries aren't. Now, manufacturing is, of course, the exception. We lag many countries there. But I think the thing that's really fueled our success is that we have a lot of very talented people that are creative in producing successful com companies in newer areas. And um, it remains to be seen whether... China can do that. So I don't, in the end, I don't think that the, the barriers to success will be natural resources. It will be more about flexibility, human capital, uh, a dynamic economic system that encourages innovation, those kind of things. And whether China will be successful on that front will determine whether it ends up looking more like the US economically or more like slightly more stagnant, but relatively rich industrial powers. What you didn't say, Scott, is you don't see the U.S. or China being overly dependent on each other in a way that gives, you know, one an unfair advantage financially. Uh, I, I don't really like the term unfair. The U.S., I mean, first of all, there's so much emotion in looking at the world that way. How many Americans know that we're the most protectionist developed country in the world in terms of tariffs right now? If you did a poll, we have the highest tariffs in the entire developed world. 
We're very uh, hostile to the World Trade Organization. We've been trying to kneecap them, make them ineffective. Um, you know, we don't we don't play fair. So um, I don't like to look at the world that way. Obviously, there's a lot of things China does that I don't like, but um, I think that the success of countries is not about how they're treated by other countries. It's about what they do themselves. Like they need to look in the mirror whether it be China, the United States, or any other country. And if you're not doing well, it's because of what you're doing internally, not because other countries are preventing you from doing well. I want to be mindful of, of, of time here. We're, we're a few minutes over. Lynn, was there any uh, last uh, word you wanted to have on this topic or anything else that we, we spoke today? Or? No, I think we, I think we covered a, a broad array of topics. Uh, I guess one thing I'm mindful of is that uh, things tend to go in cycles. And again, going to areas where you underinvest in for a period of time, whether it's commodities or infrastructure, uh, that can work out for a while and then it starts to kind of reverse. Um, and so one way I'd phrase is that the 2010s were very, very favorable to the US in the sense that this was a decade where commodities were abundant for multiple reasons. Uh, and you had that period where you could you could rely on technology very, very heavily to do very well. You know, I think going forward when we have these kind of you know strains on globalization, when you know we're specifically having inflation that's partially tied to global supply chain, you know limitations. I think that having your own infrastructure, your own manufacturing infrastructure, and your logistics infrastructure is going to be increasingly important. Um, so I, I think that the the relative importance of those things tend to go in cycles. Other than that, I mean, I, I agree that you know how countries invest plays a large role. Uh, I often show this this chart. Uh, I referenced it earlier. The the mean and the median wealth of different countries and, and the divide between them from cre- uh, data using uh, from Credit Suisse. And Germany, for example, does have lower median wealth than many other European countries. You know, lower than Italy, for example. It's not not something you, you'd guess from from you know their histories uh, and kind of their current state of affairs. Whether it's it's you know the the relative importance on the global scale or you know what happens with their sovereign debt. Uh, and yet, a lot of it is because they invest in in very conservative ways. And yeah, one thing you could run into China is that because they invest very, very heavily in their property markets, um, if they all kind of collectively, uh, as in aggregate, invest in a real estate bubble that pops, uh, that can do a lot of long-term damage to their economic growth prospects. So there are different ways that that can play out. The same thing could be true, for example, if if say Americans kind of pile into the equity market at, at, at say a top and a kind of a period of, of historic overvaluations. And then if the S&P 500 goes kind of sideways for, for 10, 20 years, right? That's a, a, another way that you can kind of malinvest. So that 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 kind of impacts different countries around the world at different times. So that happened with Japan for periods of time. That could be happening with China right now. Uh, and and you know, that could be happening to parts of the US right now. So I think that that is an important thing to be aware of, that if you have kind of collective malinvestment uh, that can obviously, you know, strategically impact a country for the, you know, for the worse. Yeah. Scott, is there any the last uh, thing you wanted to to say before, before we wrap? Well, those are, those are real good points. The important thing is to stay flexible. So if, if you do get into a problem area, you need to have a flexible enough economy to make the transition. And I'm not sure the Japanese actually made the transition properly after the early nineties bust. Um, it seems to me their tech firms are less dynamic than not just the U.S., but maybe in some cases even you know South Korea, China, and so on. So um, flexibility, making sure your economy can adjust when there are periods of malinvestment, is also important. Yeah, 
that's a that's a good place to, to wrap for people who, who enjoyed the conversation. If you haven't listened to my other episodes with with Lynn and Scott, let me remind you that Lynn has a fantastic blog. You can find it at lynnalden.com. And she also has a number of other podcast appearances. I, I went down the rabbit hole recently and I highly recommend others uh, do so as well. And, and Scott also has a fantastic blog called The, the Money Illusion. And we uh, we discussed his uh, his latest book on market monetarism in uh, in in a most recent uh, episode that I highly recommend you check out the episode as well as as well as the book. Uh, Scott Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a great discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.